You scarcely hear the word software these days without it followed by supply chain. It's one of the biggest topics in cybersecurity. How to best make sure the thousands of pieces of a software program add up to something safe. For an update on how to best think about the software supply chain security issue, I spoke with the Deputy Chief of the Computer Security Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. John Boyens. Our general guidance on cybersecurity supply chain risk management typically has covered both hardware, software, and services in general. It wasn't until a couple of years ago with the SolarWinds incident and the following Executive Order 14028 that really focused on software. So kind of at the same time, we were updating our special publication flagship, which is 800-161-REV-1, and we were able to address supply chain risk guidance in that publication specific to supply chain. We focused specifically on providing guidance for software bill of materials, open source software, enhanced vendor risk assessments, and vulnerability management. This was also the first time that we were able to move kind of left of center and move out into the development realm. And we developed a secure software development framework or special publication 800-218 that was very specific in providing guidance to software developers. And software development these days is very different from the concept people had maybe in the 80s where a new program was programmed by your programmers and everyone wrote different pieces of it and you compiled it into an application. And there were all kinds of quality check automation programs back then. Now it's more like assembling pieces from various sources in a Lego fashion almost. You might get a brand new application, but it's made of standard Lego-like pieces. And that's changed how we have to deal with software because the supply chain is not simply that supplier but that supplier's sources of the Lego blocks. Fair to say? That is very fair to say. The complexity is enormous right now. All right. So then that complicates the issue because do you have to look, I guess, in NIST's thinking at the corporate entities that supply these or at just the objects themselves? I think both. So I think it's key to go back to the old kind of blocking and tackling of risk management, and it's knowing. It's knowing who the critical suppliers of that software is. It's knowing what software you have in your network, the relationship between uh, the different technologies and software in that network, and the uh, risk impacts that they could have. And that that was one of the the main things we saw in the SolarWind incident a, a few years ago. So the recent thinking then is that you need a software bill of materials in order to understand the supply parts of the software. And this is part of Executive Order 14028, and there's been a lot of development and guidance on how to use SBOMs. In your experience, does the SBOM provided by your primary supplier in general include everything that it should? Well, right now, a lot of work is ongoing on SBOMs uh, out of DHS CISA. SBOMs have been around for 35 plus years in the software development field. You know, when they are developing a big software package and they're using third-party software, they usually get uh, the software bills of materials or component inventories, which is another name for them. But that's at the development stage and there's usually non-disclosure agreements. SBOMs at the consumer 
phase are just fairly recently and still fairly nascent. So I would say that understanding the provenance of software, SBOMs are clearly where rubber hits the road. However, organizations need the capability to both consume and proactively use those SBOMs. If they don't, then SBOMs merely become shelfware until there's an incident or known vulnerability. SBOMs are a critical piece of supply chain risk management, but they're not a silver bullet, and they require an organization to have a broader and deeper vulnerability management program established in order to really reap the benefits of SBOMs. We're speaking with John Boyens. He's Deputy Chief of the Computer Security Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Yes, that ability to operationalize or do something about what's in the SBOM, that's really crucial. Otherwise, yeah, we got an SBOM, and then you are complying with the need to get an SBOM, but actually not using it in an operational sense to make your organization more secure. That seems like a big bridge between compliance and actually doing something to ensure cyber security. It, it most certainly is. And, you know, out, outside of this software specific area, I don't know if supply chain risk management has really become a compliance measure, but definitely in the software space. Right. Well, what's your best advice then for agencies that want to get after the supply chain? I mean, I imagine in the federal acquisition space, there are limitations legally, statutorily, on the sources of software that can come into federal systems, but that doesn't mean it always happens. Right. And and similar to developing a vulnerability uh, management program, trying to conduct cybersecurity supply chain risk management, you know, in 800-161, we address the critical factors they go into this. And a lot of these are internal processes that a lot of organizations don't recognize yet, but we put them as key factors. And that's such things as developing a program management office, developing roles and responsibilities specific to supply chain, establishing supply chain information sharing mechanisms. And of course, I think that the key part is having a top-down direction and dedicated resources. Because without those dedicated resources, then only the bare minimum compliance pieces are going to get addressed. And what's your assessment of how agencies are doing? I mean, do they come to you with questions? I mean, NIST is always cited as the reference for what agencies say they're doing. What's your sense of how good the government is yet at using SBOMs and at getting after that supply chain conceptually? Well, right now, I think a lot of agencies are waiting for additional direction from OMB and DHS CISA with regard to SBOMs and where they fit in. Again, it's still fairly nascent, so I don't think a lot of agencies have the capability to consume SBOMs. I mean, that's not writ large. There are some agencies that do, but it, it isn't across the board. Are there third-party sources that might be able to say, well, we'll look at your S-bombs for you and tell you where the dangers are? Yes, actually. And that, that's, you know, I mean, 10 years ago, I would say no. There were very few third-party vendors at all that really address supply chain, let alone the, the actual services they provide. That's changed quite a bit over the last few years. I'll say that the number of vendors has increased, although I would say that they've been more focused recently on supplier illumination and conducting due diligence on critical suppliers. That, with a lot of, you know, with these executive orders and other items like SBOMs, 
those capabilities are expanding. So they are now offering, you know, means for agencies to consume those SBOMs as, as well as broader vulnerability management functions. And a final question, is it probably good practice to ask your primary software t- supplier to look at its own library? I mean, for example, I, I knew a programmer many years ago who was programming coding, raw coding, communications protocols for a online company at the time. And it's likely that whatever that was that that coding resulted in, a communications protocol, how to connect, was reused and reused in subsequent generations of the software, corporate takeovers, transfers. So a lot of that code wasn't maliciously done, but it was simply reused and reused and brought forward into new generations of software. And so there might be some historical vulnerabilities built in. Is that something to be concerned with? It is. And I think it's one of the the toughest difficulties with open source software right now. So if there is a a corrupt piece of code in a a library, it quite often gets reused over and over again. So that is one of the the large initiatives by the administration to address open source software. We've provided some guidance in that, more in terms of consuming or purchasing open source software. But, But definitely that is one of the biggest issues, particularly since most, if not all, proprietary software includes open source software. Sure. So you think we're making progress overall? I would say it's uh, three steps forward, two steps back, but I have seen a sustained effort and progress over the last few years, so I'm much more hopeful than I was 10 years ago. John Boyens is Deputy Chief of the Computer Security Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we, uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. 
Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.